It's happening again. Welcome to Work Cookie, a CBOC podcast. As we broadcast around the world, get bite-sized morsels and tidbits from our industrial organizational psychologists, other experts, and the latest research on the workplace to boost your organization's effectiveness. Sign up now at seboc.com. That's S-E-B-O-C.com to engage with our community, gain a sense of belonging, access our other media, and get rapid advice from our experts at seboc.com. Welcome. I'm Dr. Jeremy Lokabaugh, Industrial Organizational Psychology Consultant and Workplace Communication and Negotiation Coach. In addition to seboc.com that you just heard, you can also visit my website at turnboot.com. If you're in or getting into the IO psychology field and you feel a little lost in the crowd, you're looking to jumpstart your career and maybe get the answers that your degree program never gave you about what it's actually like to work as an IO psych practitioner, check out CBOC's IO Career Pathfinder membership at cboc.com. Also, we have Tom Bradshaw, voice and speech coach and a damn good actor at that. He is the leading voice and speech coach for the industrial organizational psychology community. Well, hello everyone, and welcome to Work Cookie, our weekly gathering for IOs, HR, recruiters, and one actor, as we gather to talk about how to make work life a little bit better. Uh, and Jeremy, today you've chosen a topic that it's coming up more and more as we continue down this path of the way that the world of work is changing. And, and that's really the focus on leadership. You know, especially when it's coming to that move that a lot of organizations are making from completely co-located to either hybrid or remote, that role of leadership is really changing. And, you know, from what I'm seeing out there, that role of manager is really becoming a leadership role in a way that's quite different than it was 20 years ago. It is. And the interesting thing is a lot of the, when you look at the research on different types of power, we're still, which is not bad. It's where, you know, the, 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 the theories that are from, you know, 50 years ago, when you're looking at, you know, referent power and uh, all these other types of power, they still apply. And the neat thing is you can find studies that are now looking at them in, in, in different ways. One of the, uh, I'll share today is a model of looking at gossip in the workplace and how gossip, whether it's positive or negative, can influence whether someone has positive or negative power, whether it be coercive, expert, referent, reward power. It's interesting because, Tom, you and I, we were on that event. We were talking about in basically internal systems for employee communication. And it got me talking about thinking about that, too, because you look at how gossip can also shape workplace culture. I'll share a little bit of that for today. And there's a scale that was developed. When you look at physicians and the implementation of technology where they're having to write in and type in all the uh, data on the patients. Some physicians would see that as a reduction of, of power, for example, because now they're doing what they may see as maybe administrative work. So then that caused some people in that, in that healthcare industry to look at, all right, can we actually create a scale to try to find out what type of power somebody in the workplace thinks they have? So I'll be pulling that up too, but it's interesting because some of the questions are at my work, I have, and you have low to high scale, either opportunities or nowhere to go, knowledge or ignorance, authority or no authority. And what comes out of that is you can start to identify what kind of power one perceives themselves to have because it's self-report data. 
And I was thinking too, that that could be interesting to use in addition with a leadership 360 report, because yes, a 360 will provide what they think on those other things, but rarely do you see something as specific as nailing it down to what kind of power that they have. There's a lot of fun ways that we can take it. And I'll start to pull up these examples on the screen share. And I'll also share in the chat a file and I'll look to someone else on the panel to take it from here while I do that. Tom, I'll turn it back over to you. Well, just before you, you, you start doing that research, Jeremy, one thing you said sort of clicked in my head and that was, you know, that old phrase of to gain power, you have to give power away. As we develop this new work paradigm, you know, uh, you know, Sharon McLean is talking about, you know, the fourth industrial revolution that we're in right now. Is that becoming more of a truism that really and truly in today's work world, if you want to increase your power, you need to give power away? I think it's a combination of power and trust, which both lead to extreme vulnerability, which leads to people not wanting to do it, which makes total sense. And that, yeah, that comes from, you look at, I, I believe that's in, you look at Kuz's and Posner's research on the five main factors that are seen globally as the factors that people look for in a leader. And of course, their resulting book with multiple editions of the leadership challenge, which also resulted in an assessment called the LPI, which is a leadership practices inventory. But yes, that's where they brought up the paradox of power in order to become powerful you have to give power away. Again, ooh, ouch, doesn't feel good, vulnerability, and then also the whole, the trusting aspect. And on that note, because I have a visual reminder here today, this is our, our 100th episode, which is so cool. And Linda Ann has just made it the day she has balloons. So if you're on the, if you're on the podcast, you gotta, you gotta start comments because Linda has all these colorful balloons hanging in the back, backdrop of her video today in celebration of our 100 episode. And they're moving around. Look at that. Tom, over to you. Well, happy 100, everyone. And thank you to everyone who's taken this journey with us, including Lee. Let's go to you, Lee. You know, one thing that I've noticed in the workplace, especially dealing with some of the the younger workers who who were raised very differently than, you know, their elders, is uh, quiet power. Kind of goes along with the, the giving power away. Part of your power is to convince them that they want to do it. You know, I mean, um, I think it was Winston Churchill that said, you know, diplomacy is the way is a way of telling someone to go to hell that makes them look forward to the trip. So the what you do is you get them to to want to do what it is you wanted to do. Uh, and you can give them some you can, and give more information. You know, we have to give more information than we used to. And uh, I mean, I did this with my own children when they were younger. They would want to do something I didn't want them to do. And I'd say, okay, well, you can do that, but this will be the consequence. You can choose to do what I told you to do, or you can choose to have this consequence. And then, of course, being children, they would do it. They would get the consequence, and then they would, ah, I'm like, well, you chose this. This was your choice. And, uh, you know, and, and after a while, they kind of figured that out, you know, because kids are hard-headed, and it took them a little while. And eventually they went, hmm. Maybe that consequence is not as worth the what I think the fun is going to be. And so sometimes with your your uh, employees, you have to go, okay, you know, um, you can do things other than what I'm telling you to do, but this is going to be the consequence of that. Um, if it's great, 
fantastic. I'll run up the flagpole and sing your praises. If it doesn't, you're going to be held accountable for, you know, whatever mayhem you have caused. And, uh, you know, to try to get people to really think through that. Uh, and, and, you know, and really when you're working with people above you, you know, that kind of goes back to making them think it was their idea. Right. So if you can phrase it in a way that it's a we thing, and then all of a sudden they're like, I've got a great idea. You're like, That's fantastic. That's the best idea I've heard all day. I mean, you have used your quiet power to get them to do exactly what you wanted them to do. Um, not in a manipulative way, but in a way that, you know, you're, you're sharing the wealth as it were, you know, sharing the power. Right. Uh, Lee, if I may, but- if, if I may add to that, so right on that note, Something that it was a, a military general I was talking with once was speaking to me and whether it was, I think it was a combination of you know, his subordinates and also his kids along that perspective, when the, when it comes, especially with, you know, with kids, when we're trying to keep them safe, the way it was, the way it was phrased, which I remember and remember. And I, I always think, I always find that interesting is you have a set of choices and based on you, the set, the choice that you make, I have a set of choices. So it's a neat way of, of putting that into perspective saying you can make, it almost gives them a little bit more of accountability and, but it adds that autonomy too, knowing that they still have the ability to make whatever choice they want, but uh oh, you know, I also have to realize that this other person who sets the rules can make the choice based on what I make. So they, it starts to help them understand more of a cause and effect relationship than just a coercive type of relationship. So thanks for bringing that uh, thought forward. I agree with that. And I noticed with a lot of my, my juniors, especially the really younger ones, uh, when I explained to them that it wasn't just because I told you so, it's there are actual rules and regulations in play and that you, know, you are causing certain things by your actions. They tended to be a lot more uh, received because they understood it wasn't just my opinion saying, I don't like that. There were actual repercussions that they were forcing upon themselves. Yeah, great point. Uh, Dr. Martha, let's go to you. You know, one of the things that um, when we talk about giving away power or empowerment, if you will, we tend to think about um, the, the supervisor or the manager in question and his or her subordinates. And that tends to be the picture that we look at, but there's so much more to that picture because there are most likely people above that manager and whether or not that manager feels safe in the environment of those above him or her in empowering others or giving power away, because there is such a thing as a concern that if I give my power away, I make myself obsolete. And in certain organizations, that could very well be true. So it's not just about that manager and his or her team. It's also about who is above that manager and what kind of experience they provide to that manager. Do they allow him or her to be safe? The other point that I wanted to bring up, um, this discussion is making me think of a book that's titled uh, Power Versus Force, and that's by uh, Dr. Uh, David Hawkins. And 
he tells the story or explains the difference between power versus force. And one of the best examples that sticks out for me from that book is a comparison between Gandhi, who had power, and the British Empire, who had force. Without the army and the guns, the British Empire had nothing. And here was this man who had no guns, no violence, no desire for violence, and look at the power that he had. So it's so important that when we look at organizations and we look at managers, we keep that in mind because there are those people in management who are more about force than power. Right. So that's a whole different take on that topic then at that point. Well, let me, let me turn that on its head a little bit because you talk about the various levels in the organization and the term of the week is quiet quitting. Are, are these people reclaiming power? Is, is, can we describe it that way? And is that kind of what's going on? Well, I think that's reclaiming personal power, I think. Maybe not necessarily your power in the workplace. If if quiet quitting means actually leaving or checking out while staying there, then I would say it's a form of personal power, not necessarily gaining any kind of power within the organization at that point. Uh, but certainly there's something to be considered there. It's um, It's not I don't think it's that different from the this uh, mass exodus that we've seen, the great resignation, whether you leave physically or whether you collect the paycheck, but you're totally checked out. That didn't happen overnight, and that didn't happen for no reason. Very, very true. And um, it's going to be interesting to see where that goes. Uh, Dr. Oriana, let's go to you. Hi, everyone. Yeah, I... Based on the list that, you know, many of us learned in grad school and that Dr. Jeremy just put up, I, when we look at this list, um, what stands out to me is I think the last century has been uh, maybe an over-indexing on legitimate power in the workplace where people use their positional authority and kind of do it almost in that parenting style. I know you guys were getting at different concepts earlier, but like, I am the authority and you'll do as I say, kind of a mentality. But I think we're, um, I think it relates to the quiet quitting because I think that there have been a number of abuses of power in the workplace. And sometimes it's a whole chain, right? As Dr. Martha would say, where the most toxic leader starts at the top and then no leader down the whole chain has that sense of psychological safety or trust. But I think we're seeing a move right now in our zeitgeist of the 20th century where we are moving to more of the referential power and almost that power almost held at the organization level. What are the values we care about? What are we about? How is this meaningful? And how do we draw people in on that? But it also, I think we've talked about this many, many episodes now, it takes another effort from leaders and it takes care and it takes caring about the individual and getting to know your team and putting in that effort. Um, so I definitely see this shift. And now I think that people are no longer willing to just do whatever because their leader says so. And I think that's where we see people taking back their personal power. Speaking of that leadership, you know, there's a transition going on and some leaders are well advanced in the curve of changing the culture in the organization more to the model you're talking about. But there are still those people who are hanging on to those old paradigms. What's going to happen to those people if they don't make the shift? 
Well, <laughs> I feel like you always ask this question, but I feel like you're just going to get the worst outcomes, right? Your teams are going to be less effective. You're going to have high, higher turnover. But I also, um, since I did a lot of leadership consulting to the construction industry, I've seen that these leaders need our help too. So I think that we need to consider everyone and give them leadership training and help them. And I've seen a lot of traditional oriented leaders have a lot of light bulb moments that they could then bring back to the workplace. So hopefully we can kind of bring everyone up in this positive transition toward focusing on people, meaning and values. Yeah, we got to get him in the room first. <laughs> we got to have that conversation. Uh, Nick, welcome to the stage. You want to unmute your mic and join us. Good morning. I just, as we kind of talk about some of this, you know, I think of, you know, how leadership has to change when you get more kind of flattened out organizations where you don't see just the traditional hierarchy. And so leadership is less about, you know, kind of power and authority and more about that sort of influence. Do you influence the culture, the ideas, things like that? Everybody in the room should have that same common goal to get the work done. But when you don't have, you know, A reports to B reports to C as much anymore, um, you know, in most cases, how does that change what you have to do? And I think it does speak to that. Okay, I have to care about the entirety of the employee. Why are, why are they collecting a paycheck? Are they just here for the money? Um, you know, did they join up because they care about the vision or because, you know, it was the, the hot new name in tech uh, or whatnot to, to really kind of advance their career and understanding those motivations in order to get the best for and out of the, the people that they work with. Uh, let me ask you this, because I had a chat with Liam Martin a couple of months ago, and he talked about the democratization of work. And is that is that causing this sort of leveling of the playing field where, you know, power is maybe shared more? I think so. And just the, the amount of tools and, and avenues to which, you know, employees have to, you know, go find a job at the competitor or go strike off on their own, you know, they, they're not as trapped as they once were, even though, you know, you get these people talking about quiet quitting that sounds like, well, I hate it here, but I'm going to stay anyway because the alternative is worse. Um, but I think there are those freedoms and it does level the playing field. And I think there is kind of some understanding of how do you get through that power struggle. Um, and again, I think it does help to have more of that compassionate view of the, the total employee rather than, you know, what do they do from nine to five? Yeah, I agree. Linda Ann, let's go to you. I have a couple things. One, I think that uh, sort of on the, the vein of where Nick was going, I think there's healthy power and unhealthy power, you know, and um, for the most part, it's the people in your environment that decides who has power, um, real power, you know, and it's only the healthy kind of power that you can give away, right? You can't give away co coercive power or authoritarian power, those kinds of things. And, and one of my favorite sayings as I was promoted in, in different situations was that, you know, um, management or leadership is the illusion of power and the opportunity to work as much as possible, you know. So I think it's a, it's a pretty fleeting or, or thing that it's hard to quantify or put your hands around. Um, but people will choose who they're going to follow or who they're going to give that power to, regardless of what your title is or what position you hold or anything like that. And so I think that um, we need to figure out how people understand how to utilize their power effectively. You know, if they're determined to have it, if they believe they have it, how do they effectively use it? And what's the tools for that process? 
I worked in an organization where the administrative assistant ran the office and we all loved it <laughs> because it worked incredibly well. Nobody knows what's going on in the office better than those people. Dr. Martha. Um, it seems like so many different topics that we discuss, whether here or in other places, it keeps coming back to the importance of an organization's culture. If the culture does not promote or allow something, um, whatever the topic is, then it's that much more difficult to make it into a reality. You can have one or two managers who are all about sharing power and empowering others. But if the culture is such that that is not to be done, then it will fizzle away because there will be things that are said or things that are done or barriers that are placed that will put an end to it. So companies' culture is so important for so many different topics that we discuss. I want to make sure that I bring that up. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Uh, and I think that can link us into Dr. Ludmila. I'm really interested to, to discover what are the various types of power or power structure that you're seeing out there in various organizations? Well, it's such a question. And we can obviously start in many different places. Uh, but really, a lot of people quit, 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 resign, do various things because they do not feel welcomed within their organizations. And very often it is because they don't have autonomy. They're not treated as adults because for a very long time, all, the, the, all those types of power that would fall under command and control have been the predominant tool in many workplaces. So it will dangle a carrot in front of your nose and then I'm going to basically change with a big club. And that is like, okay, now I'm the boss. And uh, again, that is probably has gotten organizations as far as it possibly could because uh, with the type of jobs that people have now with realizations that people have made during the pandemic, how short is life and uh, uh, how not fun it is to waste it in the environments where you're not respected and treated with uh, dignity. It is likely that people are going to be less and less likely to stay in those kinds of organizations. And yes, I see the moral injury to another article that's not working on Fast Company, but I do have a couple of an, on HBR on moral injury that uh, should be working. But uh, definitely when people are also encountering cultures that are internally abusive, when managers who come in with a good will and uh, are trying to do their best, but their bosses are not allowing them to keep all right, you're going to have moral injury. And when you know that your culture is, uh, your organization is abusing uh, clients or uh, you know patients, if you're in healthcare, whatever kind of organization is, you're not living up to your mission, there's definitely a huge uh, potential for moral injury as well. It's It doesn't have to be. We can do better. But yes, there are a few deeply rooted issues with even some management training that people are taught things, unfortunately, still in business schools. They're a very bad organizational psychology. 
Okay, I see Jeremy's hand. Uh, so <laughs> let's see what he has. But then I, I'm happy to talk about something else. We have what we think in, in most situations, kind of an overall, this is the best type of power. And we all have our own tendencies as well. Are there different types of power, I guess, maybe for different situations where normally we would say, no, that that particular type of power is we shouldn't do that. But are there are there any things that you can think of where there's an exception to the rule? And for those listening to the podcast, what I have up here, we have French and Raven's six bases of social power, which has been for you know decades. It's the kind of the go to it's where you hear, you know, you've got informational power, expert power, referent power legitimate power and reward and coercive power. So what I have actually up just for a little context for those that are here right now, this is what was used in the development of the of that scale for physicians, but really for it for anybody to help determine what kind of power they think that they have. And these are the words that they found um, in terms of that represented the represented those types. So Lamila, I was wondering, maybe you can give us, and especially for the listeners of the podcast, could you go down and just explain a little bit about each of these six types maybe? And then what do you think about each of these six types, meaning informational, expert, referent, legitimate, and reward and coercive. And also, of course, since this is older research, any new terms that you think have hit the stage in, in the recent years that might combine or help us better understand? Sure. Actually, I don't want to go down the list. I want to go up the list because the way they are uh, arranged in this table, it actually starts with the most, you know, basic and uh, in some ways primitive, primitive way use power of power use. And it ends with the more sophisticated influence. So I'm going to start with reward and cursive, which we kind of already uh, mentioned. So dangle uh, bonuses. Uh, rewarding cursive power is what you would usually associate with uh, uh, you are going to do um, to get punished. Uh, you want to have a job, do as I say. And uh, if you do as I say really well, then maybe you'll get a raise. So that is very typical. And obviously, some, we do need rewards. It is... Uh, it is grounded in our basic human needs in that uh, people want to need basic security in life. And uh, sometimes we do work just because we need to work and uh, we hope for those rewards. So nobody's kind of there for punishments, but uh, people sometimes do take jobs for rewards and then giving honest days work, they expect to get honest days uh, pay. So there's nothing inherently wrong with that. But uh, this is not going to create the highest levels of engagement or a uh, highest level of creativity for the most part. Usually you would want to appeal to other types of modest. So appropriate use of rewards, you know, is necessary because we don't necessarily want to work for free and we want to be acknowledged, but it's just not necessarily enough to maximize the relationship. And uh, the next 
uh, part, legitimate part, is uh, based on uh, the formal formal position. So I am able to do that because I'm a boss. I'm telling you what to do because I'm a parent. That's kind of the same logic. I don't have to really explain what I'm doing because I have legitimate for uh, making those requirements, for making those demands, for outlining those goals. Again, everything is okay in moderation. There's like no such thing as full power or good power. It's neutral power and ability to make change, but how it's used, that's a problem. Sometimes we need legitimate authority. Sometimes people are thrown into situations where they're told to do something, but they lack legitimate authority. And some of us can some of us can pull it off and make anyway because we compensate with extra effort to create extra reference or informational influence but it's not how it should work in organizations uh we should be positioned appropriately to do our jobs the problem with legitimate power is that people tend to abuse it and say oh got your legitimate power that that's that's all i need i don't have to respect it i don't date my knowledge i don't have to be treated well i'm owed uh, you know, refer uh, reverence just because so that is uh, a problem when people take legitimate power too far, and uh, uh, then we get into those more of uh, inspirational types of power where we're talking about reference type of power. I want to be like you, you're such a good leader, I want to be you when I grow up. I'm just going to do those things because you uh, inspire me. You want me to belong to your team. I derive pride and joy from being on your team. So that, again, is wonderful. But again, uh, you can't imagine taking it so far that people just kind of stop any kind of critical thinking and identify with a leader to the point where it gets to the, you know, not a good charismatic leader. So you can't take everything to the extreme where it becomes a problem. But for the most part, we want to have reference power as well as expert power. I earned my knowledge. I have a lot of experience. And my specialized knowledge gives me a little bit more weight than someone who maybe, you know, read two articles on the topic versus if I've been doing this for 30 years. So you do use expert power and it can create a lot of uh, positive because you're not reinventing the wheel. You know what's happening. You are able to use knowledge to recombine it in new ways to inform creativity. You could take it again a little bit too far to become a little bit too rigid, but not necessarily as long as you still have um, the learning attitude. And the final one is uh, very interesting. So when uh, French and Draven uh, designed the original version of uh, the model, Raven wanted to add uh, informal power, but French didn't agree. French thought that it's more of an influence, but not necessarily a power in itself. But uh, Raven later 
uh, included it in all the different variations. And uh, he was uh, very committed to uh, informational uh, power. And then uh, it was taken a little bit further to understand that it's a power that actually stays with people. So you help to understand why something is the best. Uh, you are giving people reasons for action. And then you can just kind of step back. And when people understand the reason for action, uh, they're just, just going to carry it over. They may not even remember they got this influence from you, but it is important to them. So informational influence is something that uh, I see personally now in thought leadership, especially with remote thought leadership. I can follow someone in Australia because I think they're just uh, having this brilliant approach to doing things in the workplace. Or I can follow, follow someone uh, in Norway. So I they don't have to be physically present. They don't have to have any kind of formal authority over me, but they can influence how I think and my decisions because they're not because of uh, the kind of thinking they provide. So what I believe in the current situation, most organizations need to teach their leaders is how to influence at a distance because if you put people into one place and stand over their head with a big club it's pretty easy to be a boss now if you are trying to influence people from far away remotely and you want to inspire them from far away you have to be functioning much more uh like a thought leader than a traditional boss in the workplace. So if we want modern organization, if we want uh, work from home to work, if we want the future of work in which people have a lot of autonomy and work is getting done, then we need to rely more on expert informational and reference power. But yes, there are exceptions. And we probably all have occasionally worked with people uh, who are not in that particular place in their life yet. And uh, they are their boss. Why would they even listen to you? So there are occasional situations when formal authority, reward authority, and coercive authority is needed. I would use it as a last resort when I see an individual who is not responding to a referent informational or expert power. However, uh, the problem is if that is used as a default with everyone, assuming none of us are intrinsically motivated and only respond to the club. So that kind of creates a problematic situation. But yes, it's important for leaders to also uh, sometimes understand that each individual might need a different mix of approaches to how you work with them. Dr. Ludmila, I, I wanted to ask you, what is it like in the situation of talking to leadership and telling them they have to change their leadership style? Is that an easy conversation to have? 
No. <laughs> I, said, I think you know the answer. And uh, my area is diversity and inclusion. I've been in diversity and inclusion for longer than I'm willing to acknowledge, but uh, yeah, since the 90s. Take an area where you to get people to start to think differently. So it's very difficult. And I mean, if you tell someone you've been doing this wrong for 20 years, uh, they're going to take it very well. So again, uh, you want to give them some examples. You give them some information. Uh, this is how this company has done it. Here's a case study. That's how they've been doing it. And results were not so good. And now they're doing it in this way. And, uh, you know, their inclusion numbers, their retention, their all the desired outcomes are much better. So again, you can even apply the same framework to how you talk to those people. Nobody wants uh, someone to come to them and tell them, you know what, you don't know what you're doing and uh, uh, you have to change. Uh, internal person is probably not going to do too well attempting that. And, uh, you know, if you're a consultant, probably might really be asked back. Uh, so, again, expert power, trying to blame and teach, uh, trying to model. If you are an internal person, especially, and they observe you working, uh, that you could model a little, develop more of a reference power, or even just provide examples uh, from your life. And uh, informational power definitely works much better when you are trying to get change on this level. And examples, humans do to examples and humans do respond to stories, but those stories need to be real because if you keep faking, they're going to, to catch you. Not if you're a well-trained actor, that's all. Um, let, me, let me ask you the question again, but maybe in a little bit of a different way, because I'm wondering, employees themselves have changed, especially coming through the pandemic. We're all now much more concerned about work-life balance. So what kind of leadership are employees attracted or drawn to, if I want to, you know, build those people who follow me, what type of leadership are they looking for that really gets them going so they have a greater buy-in? Well, we keep hearing about empathy. And even before the pandemic, a lot of people said that they would quit uh, and uh, leave if they could find a more empathetic leader. It is something that we see even more now. So people are looking for empathy. Their definitions of empathy are slightly different. Uh, some people want someone who will just, you know, understand everything about my situation and maybe give me some slug. But I don't think that's kind of how it was meant to be. I think it's someone who uh, will uh, help us develop in ways we want to develop. And that uh, you hear that many people want leaders to be mentors. They say, especially Gen Zs and young, younger millennials, but I would argue that anyone uh, could use a good mentor, mentor that uh, could have this referent and informational influence on us. And uh, there are definitely other things that we all want, but we generally want someone who is competent and who is going to treat you well. That really hasn't changed because it's human nature, but it's an intensity and urgency with which we now realize that this is just 
really, really important. Life is short and a bad boss can ruin a big chunk of it. So we're really looking for people who are ethical and for uh, people who know what they're doing. Uh, let me ask you this as well, because I was having a great conversation yesterday with Trip Braden about psychological safety in the workplace, and especially when it comes to inclusion. So how is that reshaping or changing the work environment? Very much so, because uh, you can't have inclusion without psychological safety. Uh, and that is one issue where traditional uh, diversity inclusion programs fall short, because you can get numerical diversity if you try really hard, but you're not going to have inclusion without psychological safety. You're definitely not going to have belonging without psychological safety because people need to be able to uh, participate and feel like they can actually bring themselves to work and not to pretend to be someone else. And uh, the ability to contribute to conversation, to actually share uh, all those the opinions and experiences that come from us coming from different backgrounds to actually realize benefits of diversity. It only is going to happen if people feel like their voice is actually welcomed and appreciated and not just given a lip service, but really service, but really, no, we don't want to hear from you. So we definitely want to creates ecological safety because without it, inclusion is uh, just not going to happen in, most, in our workplace. Right. Uh, well, maybe here's the hard question, uh, and then I'll give you a bit of a break and, and we'll go to some other speakers, but is there buy-in? I mean, are organizations seeing this as inevitable and the quicker we get on the path, the better it's going to be for us? Or are there still leadership who is hesitant what's the both. real story out there yeah is, is it a 50 50 split right now or are we seeing momentum in one direction it kind of depends on the industry hmm. some industries that traditionally had kind of a lot of entrenched power or have very strong bro culture that's been there for a very long time really don't want to you know do something different and uh, there are industries that are a little bit more open, but even within uh, the same industry, you get people who say, you know what, like, what do you want from me? You want a particular number? Just tell me what number you want. I'll try to produce it somehow. But uh, they really do not think it through and they have not internalized the value of actually different opinions and uh uh, different ways of thinking. And then there are obviously companies uh, that are all in and uh, uh, definitely want to do something different. Or there are st incredible startups that actually created specifically to be inclusive and designed to be inclusive. But then there are some older organizations that are doing some some pretty good job. Nobody's perfect. Like Walgreens uh, is winning a lot of awards for their inclusion, but Walgreens is not perfect. Uh, they have things to work on. And uh, the same to say for other companies, some are doing very well with neurodiversity inclusion, which hardly anyone 
does well, but they're ages. So it's it's also it's very granular there are some people who will say yeah we're all in and we're doing stuff about gender then you ask them about disability and then they're like what are you talking about so it's not uh just one thing or rather there are also people who uh might have uh accepted a very specific agenda within diversity but not uh, a broader perspective that uh, there are multiple variables there as well. Dr. Martha, I'd like to go to you and, and ask sort of the same question. Are, are you seeing organizations willing to make this change and how do they get started? Well, I think oftentimes organizations get started because something prompts them, be that an event or um, situation or a lawsuit, perhaps. Um, it's, it's so interesting that change can be so slow for so many, because it's human nature to get comfortable in the way we've always done things. And change requires time and effort. And when we're talking about organizations, um, uh, mostly, you know, we're, we're looking at profit. What is the bottom line? And if I go through the trouble of making this change, taking the time and the effort, which all translates into money, what will be the payoff for my organization in the end? And so you have people like me, and I look at uh, diversity as a no-brainer. The more diverse a group is, the more diverse your ideas, the more strengths and talent you have. But when you talk to an organization, they look at that and say, well, you know, that's nice on paper, but can you guarantee me some kind of results? What, what am I going to get in 30 days here? So I think because humanity tends to get stuck in its comfortable spots, it can be difficult to get the change started. And unfortunately, there's sometimes it's, it's an event that prompts the change. We know that the pandemic prompted all kinds of changes for organizations. If the pandemic would not have happened, would those changes happen? Probably not for most of them. Uh, you know, the working remotely, idea was not new before the pandemic. And there were many companies who had tried it, but there were also many companies who had tried it and then decided not to continue with it, brought everybody back to the office. And that was way before the pandemic. You know, yeah. well, we tried it. We didn't get millions of dollars as a result. So let's just go back to the way we used to do things. So it always goes back to what's your motivation for this change? How painful is it to not change? And what's the payoff to change? So it will vary by organization, it will vary by industry, and it will vary by leader. The people at the very top, whoever has the final word, can often trump anybody else's reasoning. So that comes into play too. So again, a lot of different uh, variables come into play here. I think um, change has to happen over time because the only constant in the universe is change. Otherwise, we'd still be living in caves. So change does happen over time, but it doesn't always happen as quickly as we would like it to. Very true. Linda, let's go to you. I think one of the challenges that we face is that 
when we're talking about these topics, <clears throat> how, <clears throat> how it's implemented and applied in the, the work world, in the workforce, is that a lot of leadership isn't even aware of this stuff existing. And, you know, it's our headspace, right? We live in this world. But it's like, you know, if I went ahead and tried to structurally engineer a building, you know, I, I wouldn't even know where to start. And so I think that we need to make sure that we're educating first before we're expecting change. Because I think that a lot of um, leadership is not even remotely aware of some of these issues. Or, or the information related to them. How, how are they missing it? <laughs> I mean, I mean, in my world, it's out there everywhere. So how is leadership missing this? I think their priorities are, are elsewhere. We're not, we have to be sure that we're speaking their language so that they can hear us. Right. So yeah, let's, <laughs> let's use the same language. Uh, we're down to just a couple of minutes left and Nick and Amanda want to get you both in. So Nick, let's go to you first. Uh, the one thing that uh, kept coming to mind is we talk about, you know, the basis of power and the person in authority. Uh, and for me, it is a two-way street because the other, the employee, the, the under has to submit to that authority as well. Right. Um, you know, you know, if you think of, I have a physical safety because somebody's standing over me with a club, that that's a form of submission. Um, so I'd be interested to hear any thoughts or discussion on what does submission to these different bases of power look like and you know submission is a very kind of power driven word um but you know kind of that idea of coercion versus influence or, or anything like that kind of some of those ideas coming out yeah it sounds like another great topic for another show jeremy oh. <laughs> amanda let's go to you so your question of why earlier ended up bringing back some of the items that dr martha ended up bringing up about what has brought in within their circle of awareness um Leaders have got so much on their bandwidth that you're lucky to grab a 15-minute cup of coffee with them as they're walking from one meeting to another because their calendars are jam-packed. They've got folks that are um, managing their calendars for them and telling them where they need to be during the day so that they are there on time. And it gets to the point of trying to find the way in which to speak it to them in their language, which is often, well, what is the impact of the business value of transitioning the leadership from one area to another? Um, because a lot of the conversation I'm hearing that's coming about keeps resonating content I read from Bass's Handbook of Leadership. If you want a solid um, summarized area on the leadership studies area, check out Bass's Handbook of Leadership. It's freaking awesome, but you will probably be drinking out of a fire hose. Um, but it's really trying to get their buy-in to understand that the we're all human and for followership to actually volunteer themselves we're human, so we need to see their humanity. And that gets back to that empathy portion. And that transformational leadership is so vital for that. Yeah, it certainly is. Uh, Dr. Ludmila, let's go back to you. And then, Jeremy, I'm going to come to you for the wrap-up. Okay. I was just telling someone to say save on the hurricane because apparently someone is in the zone of hurricanes. But I wanted to quickly visit the next question about uh, submission. It would go the better a uh, term for submission is followership, which is a whole other huge area of study. But 
uh, yes, the way people react to power and those who are in authority positions is a very important variable. And what we want is uh, a willing followership rather than obviously just scared person who is doing frantically something just not to get punished because you will not get the best creativity or innovation in that way. So you want people uh, who are there because they want to be like in any kind of situation. Uh, anytime you try to force people to do something, results are never going to be uh, as good as if they were there wholeheartedly. Yeah. And, and Jeremy, that reminds me of, you know, something that you've often said of, there's lots of books on leadership. There's no books, really good ones on followership. Uh, Jeremy, final thoughts for the day. Yes. And Tom, if you have a hard stop right now, I can run it out. I don't know if you do or not. Um, beautiful discussion as always. Two, three things. Lee has a virtual, it's in the chat for the link, a virtual IO networking event next Wednesday evening. You can also check him out on LinkedIn. Uh, he's got a post on there up about that. And Lee also does some really cool pop-up events. Next, Holly, can you speak briefly on what you have posted and how can people know and learn and about, ah, I can't pull it up. Help me out, Holly. High sure. performance uh, paradox. Go for it. Yes, the high performance paradox. So um, a lot of us here look at human performance and lots of different factors. And we know that a drive to achieve isn't always enough to ensure consistent high-level performance. So I have partnered with um, my, my partner, Jamie Torciana from Exemplary Performance, and we're looking at this conundrum and we're titling it the performance paradox, why suboptimal performances happen to great performers and how to stack the odds in your favor. We're looking at a six-factor model, three factors external to the individual, three factors internal to the individual, kind of a really heavy-hitting um, session. And we're paralleling um, high performance in business and organizations and elite athletics. Um, fun fact, I'm a former professional athlete. So um, I think that this would be up, you know, the alley of the group here. So I'm just going to drop the link. If anybody wants to show up or sign up, we have a, a high performance um, insight guide that we're going to be sharing with all registered attendees, but we'd love to see you there. That's all. Thank you. Yes. And I was going to mention that. So anyone interested in sports psychology, there's going to be plenty of uh, uh, hints of that in there too. So lots mm -hmm. on performance from the lens of a sport. So that's exciting. So thank you for sharing, Holly. And the information is in the chat. And lastly, we've got some interesting themes coming up for the next couple months. You all know Dr. Destiny Preet is an, uh, amazing at getting the engagement going and the conversations going on LinkedIn. So we've been working on this media calendar and she just came up with some really in great themes for the, for the upcoming months. So uh, you'll be with some exciting ways. Tom, anything to share before we go? Well, just, uh, I think we have another event coming up October. This is a little bit down the line, but October 21st, it's an online event, uh, but you have to be a, CBOC IO Career Pathfinder member to attend that event. So we might want to encourage people, especially if they're listening on the podcast, to join, to get involved with CBOC. Check that out, Tom. Yeah. So every every month, the third Friday of each month is a uh, IO Career peer group meetup. So all the IO Pathfinder members meet up and talk about all kinds of stuff. Megan Maloney leads those. 
We're also going to start doing momentum sessions, which are going to be once, I think, every two weeks for IO. So we've got a lot of interesting things coming in, ways to engage, help people with their career paths. How do you break into the field of IO? How do you, if you're in the field of IO and working, how do you increase everything from your brand to upscaling to gaining clients? So lots and lots of fun stuff. And uh, uh, Dr. Ludmila Proslova, thank you so much for being here. And Tom, shall I count us out? Yes. Thank you to everyone. Once again, great conversation. This is the highlight of my week quite often. Uh, And with that, Dr. Jeremy, count us out. Until next time, five, four, three, two, and one. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work Cookie, a Seabock podcast. Don't forget to sign up at seabock.com. That's S-E-B-O-C.com to engage with our community, gain a sense of belonging, access our other media, and get rapid advice from experts. Would it be a bad idea to make your most challenging workplace problems go away? Don't forget to check out our corporate, career boost, recruiter, and even student memberships at seabock.com.